The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. We uh, continue our series with the graduating seniors, and this particular morning we have Bryce Suve bringing morning devotions to us. So, welcome, Bryce. Good morning, everybody. If you would please turn with me to 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6. Uh, that is where I will be preaching from today. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. This is the Word of God. Do give your attention to it. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let us uh, pray together before we begin. Our great and mighty God, we come before you now humbled by your magnificence, and yet marveling at your desire to come to us. Though we couldn't breathe without your providence, and though we wouldn't exist apart from your decree, though we would only seek sin in our own fallen nature, you came for us. Father, please do continue to forgive our various sins and foolishness. Please continue to be the faithful and steadfast God you have proven and promised to be. And it's only because of who you are that we can make these kinds of requests with full confidence that you will answer them with a loving affirmation. We don't make wishes or hope for the best with you. Instead, we come with confidence and assurance in your love. So we thank you because of your love for us in Jesus Christ and your comforting presence in the Holy Spirit that we know with absolute certainty that you will remain our loving Father always and forever. And it's in this peace-filled reality that we come now and we ask for the same measure of boldness for you to open our ears, to warm our hearts, to enliven our affections so that we would hear you speak to us through your word and would receive it with joy. So please protect the preaching of your word, fill us with your truth, and cause us to live more sanctified lives that bring you glory because of it. We pray all this on account of and for the sake of our Redeemer, who is at the same time the judge of the universe, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's common for us to hear people say, or even we say to ourselves, I live for X or Y or Z. We identify ourselves with our favorite things. Maybe you live for the local team. Maybe you live for the next adventure. Maybe you live for your family. Now the assumption with these statements is that you're obviously not being literal. You're not literally saying that you live for X or Y or Z as if it is the true core of your existence. 
It's normal for us to summarize our favorite things with these kind of hyperbolic statements. But when it really comes down to it, what is it that you truly live for? Are these statements a little bit too accurate at times? For you who profess Christ, is your chief end really to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Well, this is what Peter is challenging us here with in 1 Peter 4, 1-6. Peter exhorts us to live according to the will of God. But when you ask, how do we live according to the will of God? Well, first, Peter says to arm yourself with your identity in Christ. Second, he says to reject pleasure-seeking and people-pleasing. And third, to put your hope in the gospel of the great judge. And so first, living according to God's will means you're arming yourself with your identity in Christ. But again, what does that mean? How do we do this? To begin, remember what Christ has done for you and who you are in Him. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, let us remember what Peter has said so far in his letter. You've been elected and made to be sojourners in a society by the grace of God and on the basis of Christ's blood. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You've been born again in the resurrection of Jesus and are co-heirs of His inheritance. Verses 3 to 4. You've received the gospel. Verse 12. You're the holy children of the Father and thus Jesus' brothers and sisters. Verses 14 to 17. You're living stones who are being built upon the dwelling place of God upon the very cornerstone of Christ, chapter 2, 4-7. You're the chosen people of God who receive the many blessings and promises of the Old Testament, verses 9-10. to You're being used by God to silence the foolish by your upright living, verses 13-20. to You're sheep of the great shepherd and overseer, verse 25. You've been declared righteous by God, verse 12 of chapter 3. You've also suffered for righteousness' sake, but it's so that the lost children of God would be called home. Verses 21 to 22. And now that we live on this side of the judgment waters of God, alive in Christ and cleared by His blood, we now walk in newness of life, in that constant presence of the Father's favor and the Spirit's sanctifying and preserving power. And so it makes perfect sense to arm ourselves with this way of thinking Namely, that we consider ourselves dead to sin, for we are alive in Christ. This is part of the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 167, where it calls us to build upon our baptism by asking the question, how is your baptism to be improved by us? Indeed, we can't forget about our baptism as an ongoing means of grace. Though many of us have enjoyed baptism as infants, as we were rightfully brought into the covenant community, we must also continually remember and enjoy and build upon the grace of God as He continues to grant it to us throughout this life post-baptism. The first thing the Catechism notes is that we need to be doing this, and yet we so often neglect it. And thus it gives special attention to this long process of improving our baptism in a time of temptation. This brings us directly to the purpose of Peter here in his own way. He's calling the church to improve upon our baptism. He's calling us to respond rightly to the loving redemption of God and the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so now that you live in Christ, brothers and sisters, seek to have your life be as he describes here. 
And so arming yourselves with your identity in Christ and remembering who you are in Him means that we now reject the many lusts of humanity and choose to live instead for the will of God. In Christ, you're no longer bound to live for lust, but rather you are set free to live for God. Now it's subtle, but notice the plural of human passions, or it could be read human lusts, and yet the singular of the will of God. Even the brief summary descriptions of these two life centers are diametrically opposed, it seems. There's inherent brokenness and chaos in the many lusts of man, which ultimately leave us all unsatisfied. And yet, there's inherent unity and focus in the singular will of God, which ultimately leaves us fully satisfied. Now, please don't read this text to be teaching some kind of legalistic perfectionism. Peter hasn't been reveling in the glorious salvation of God to now say say that we need to keep ourselves in. No, Peter is instead calling us to respond in gratitude to God's love. And in gratitude, we're called to despise sin and to pursue holiness as we live out, he says, the rest of our time in the flesh. And by flesh here, Peter simply is referring to the rest of our time in this life. Again, it's not about how perfect we will be. It's about recognizing what Christ has done for us, and therefore who we are in Him, and then striving to make our central desire in life the very will of God. Now we know that a self-proclaimed Christian who would embrace anything but God as the most important and central thing in their life is a kind of walking contradiction. And yet, the reality is that Peter needed to write this letter to Christians. Indeed, along with his audience, we also need to read and hear this letter. For we too are frail and often find ourselves walking in that contradiction. And yet be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that Peter isn't exhorting the perfect. He is exhorting the sinned, the sinner saved by the grace of Christ. And as with the Christian then, so too is it with us today. God is calling us to pursue sanctification as those who are identified on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And thus through your faith in Jesus as you seek to live for the glory of God and yet stumble along in that very same pursuit, He will constantly bring you back to your cornerstone as He already brought up who is Jesus Christ. Yes, sin will come, and it will cause the paint to blister. It will cause the roof to crack. But the frame of your life will forever stand upon Christ. It will never be lifted off of Christ, nor will it be laid upon any other foundation. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, you will persevere in faith. And that frame of your life will forever rest upon and be built from that cornerstone and foundation of Jesus. And so you live according to God's will by arming yourself with your identity in Christ. Now the second answer has to do with how we live according to God's will is to reject pleasure-seeking and people-pleasing. But again, how does one do this? Well, to reject sin, we first have to recognize it. Peter isn't too pious. He assesses his reader as being a group of sinners and that many even came from this life of limitless hedonism and hedonism simply being the worship of pleasure. He doesn't just say, a few of you used to do this. He generalizes and addresses them as a whole and the description of the Gentile pagan way is to have lived in unrestraint, lust, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, 
and as it could be translated, these disgusting idolatries. And notice the difference between the feeling of the phrase, the will of God, in contrast to this gluttonous and overflowing excess of verse 3. Simply reading the verse itself reveals the overindulgence of the pagan lifestyle it describes. Indeed, this goes back to the previous point on the inherent peace of God's singular will versus the inherent chaos of the plurality of mankind's many lusts. And notice what comprises this list. Zero self-control. Full speed ahead. Drowning in drink. Smothered with skin. Creating a competition of excess and a vision of idols at every turn. Now, this is no proof text for prohibition. This is a description of the excessive hedonism in the lifestyle of self-centered pleasure-seeking. This is about those who deny Christ and worship the idol of raging revelry and party pleasures. The first descriptive word here is what the ESV calls living in sensuality, which could also be translated as living without any restraint. And the next verse will describe this as a flood of debauchery, or you could think of a raging, flooding river of reckless abandon. And so what this is getting at is a, uh, is a life with so little self-constraint that the world doesn't even try to call it good. Right and wrong, they're tossed to the side. The focus is on maximum pleasure. And thus, not only is this a list of what Christians should have absolutely no identification with, but what the world itself indeed they know it's wrong. They're not pretending to do the right thing. They revel in their indulgence. And this is when the party-goer wakes up in the morning next to a man on one side and yet a woman on the other. No clue where their personal belongings ended up and can only make out those sour smells of excess and either caked with the stains of pleasures having come and gone in a night's time. Indeed, whether or not we drink or eat, let us do all to the glory of God. But this kind of reckless and extreme self-abandon has absolutely no place in the midst of celebrations for God's people. And the world may celebrate with this unhinged praise of pleasure, but we have been set free to celebrate with the control of the Spirit to the glory of God. Next, to reject people-pleasing means that we have to expect and accept slander. Now, this isn't saying that there's never a time to clear your name or to pursue justice. And yet Peter is uh, definitely reiterating once again that being slandered, being maligned, it's what is to be expected in the Christian life. Remember, because you have been elected in God and now live in Christ, you will suffer in this life as you await glory. And here, the particular smearing that you'll receive as you live according to God's will seems to come from the implicit judgment of the loss that you receive based off of their own sinfulness when you've simply stopped enjoying the fun with them. But why are they angry when you stop showing up to their raging parties? Why? One less person to drink the punch means they get to black out that much faster, right? One less person in line means they get to get high that much quicker. One less person in the crowd means more bodies for them to use and abuse. If pleasure is God, then it seems to be a good thing that you're not there. But the reality is that they're con convicted by the inescapable truth of God. The law is written in their hearts. They know what they're doing is wrong. So why else be angry and put you down than they're, they're trying to rebuild and repair their own crumbling foundation upon the rubble of your brokenness? Indeed, by living in Christ, you've taken a shot at their shaky idol made with their own hands. 
and their only weapon of revenge is to try to break you down. But remember, dear Christian, you are living stones who are being built upon Christ. No one will ever be able to tear you down from your assurance in Jesus, no matter how painful that slander may be. Because God gives you his unbreakable joy, you do not need to live to please man. Because God is entirely pleased with us in Jesus Christ, you don't need to live for man's affirmations. You live for God because you live in Christ. And you live in Christ because he has given you life. And thus, you live according to God's will by rejecting pleasure-seeking and people-pleasing. And the final answer as to how we live according to God's will is to hope in the gospel of the great judge. But what is this hope? The first aspect of our hope in the gospel of the great judge is to recognize that our judge is ready. Note the imagery of Jesus being ready here. We hope in the gospel of Christ, who is entirely prepared to deliver his final judgment. And this is drawing from verse 22 of the previous chapter, where Christ is said to be at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having already been subjected to him. And so picture the judge with his gavel raised high. Picture the king with his sword lifted up. As we live on this side of the cross and await Christ's return, we must recognize that he can come at any moment. There's nothing holding back the King of kings and the Lord of lords from consummating all things in his final judgment. Indeed, he is ready. And for those who don't know the grace of the great judge, this is utterly terrifying. If you don't know his grace, then you'll only know his judgment. You'd be fooling yourself and putting yourself at the greatest possible risk imaginable if you'd consider just one more sin before coming to Christ. And this is part of the implication of Peter's warning here. Not only is he exhorting the Christian to reject their sinful past, but this necessarily calls uh, those current pleasure seekers and people pleasers to put an end to this dangerous game of roulette. You will not win. The odds are not in your favor. Indeed, your only hope, our only hope, is in the grace of this great judge. Your only opportunity at life is found in the grace of Jesus who has paid his people's debt and who has earned the rewards of righteousness that we could never attain. Your only hope beyond this world is found in the grace of Christ who frees his people from the bondage of sin and then binds him to himself so that they can live good lives by the grace and the power of the Spirit and to the glory of God. And so believe in Christ. Continue to believe in Christ. Trust in His grace for you, and you will know the hope of the gracious judge. For those who do believe, even as we consider our beloved brothers and sisters in the faith who are now with the Lord, the people of Christ, His church, His bride, are to be continually aware of His imminent return. Christ is ready. And he is waiting for this time to judge all. And so, yes, you will suffer in this life. But because of Jesus, you have the ability and the marvelous opportunity to always remind yourself and your fellow brother and sister in Christ that Christ is coming for you. And he is coming full of grace. And this brings us to the final aspect of our hope in the gospel of the great judge. That everlasting life starts now. This is what Peter's getting at in verse 6 
when he explains why God gave the gospel to those who are now dead. These are those who have gone to be with the Lord. Thus God gave them the gospel while they were still living so that they could and they would begin to live as citizens of his great kingdom the very moment that they were justified. And therefore, as we reflect on our own death to come, we behold the home that awaits us. It's the kingdom of God. And the truth is that Christ's kingdom has already arrived in its inauguration because of his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension. And thus, because we are citizens of the kingdom of God right now, we can live to the the will of God right now. And we can do this as we await perfection to come. Again, Christ as the ready judge isn't an image of fear for the Christian. It's an image of hope. And so whether it's the Christian alive now or the Christian who has since gone to be with the Lord, both live in Christ according to the grace of God, united with the Holy Spirit, who is the very presence of God with us in this life and the surety of our life to come. And there we will be glorified in the presence of God, still enjoying the Holy Spirit and finally beholding the face of Jesus as his brothers and his sisters living under the care of our great Heavenly Father. And this gives us hope to live for God even now, although we will be judged by the eyes of mankind for our pursuit of holiness in Christ. That doesn't ultimately defeat us. For we know that we are to live, for, live in freedom according to the will of God by that power of the Spirit as we await our final return home where righteousness will be all that we know and sin will be no more. So then to live according to God's will means that you will arm yourself with your identity in Christ. It means that you will reject pleasure-seeking and people-pleasing and that you will forever place your hope in the gospel of the great judge. Amen. Let us pray together. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us hope that cannot be broken. Thank you for being a gracious judge to us. You remain perfectly just, for you will soon come to judge all sin. And yet you have been gracious to your people because you've fulfilled the debt required for our sins. Thank you for such love that provides us unfading hope. Thank you, Lord, that because of the life that we now live in you, we are free, we are able, and we are willing to reject sin and to instead seek to live for your glory alone. Thank you, God. Please do give us the direction and the wisdom we require to be able to fulfill this exhortation from Peter. And by your Spirit, empower us to live those righteous lives in the face of a world who will hate us for doing it. Please give us relief from the persecution when we can't seem to take another blow. Please give us encouragement to know that you're working all things out for your glory and for your definition of good for your people. And please use us to bring more of your people home, even though they may be lost in lust right now, Use us to point their gaze to your gospel, O Jesus, so that they too would repent of their sin and they would trust in your grace. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.